I don't remember exactly, but it was something like, well, where does the oneness come from? Or the, something like that. Something like that. <laughs> but I think we all know the idea. I'm going to read to you, this is a quote from Albert Einstein, the physicist. A human being is a part of a whole called by us the universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of his consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature and its beauty. Wow. Okay. I thought he's a physicist, right? And he is a physicist. He's quite, quite wise. <laughs> <laughs> he is a wise physicist. Um, this, the unity that we're talking about this isn't something mysterious and, and difficult to uh, discover. It's something that is hidden from us by our, our ignorance, by our delusion in a very simple form. The, the delusion of separateness hides it. But it doesn't always hide it. It only hides it when that delusion of separateness is manifesting. And it's the mental afflictions that we have, the desire and aversion based in craving, cause us to deliberately disregard this obvious unity and sameness. So it's not like it's difficult for us to figure out that it's there. So we have to get over the afflictions that uh, make us turn away from it and deny it, even though it's obvious. And the, uh, uh, the ignorance of separateness, which tends to uh, sometimes stand between us and seeing this. And so that's, I think, the the way for us to approach this. We're not trying to discover some mysterious secret, something that's only temporarily hidden from us, but is otherwise obvious. When I found this quote, I also found another one on the opposite page that jumped out at me, because it's related to this. So I'm going to read it, and then I'll carry on with the discussion. But I thought that this was something it's interesting for you to know. Um, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know what kind of background in science any of you have. So whether you're aware of how many different atoms there are in a, uh, a human body, but uh, it is uh, it, it is a, a number with so many zeros after it that it is boggling to your mind. So the body, your body, has so many particles to it that if they were spread all over the planet, 
we find them everywhere. And not, this is what this is about. We are all made of stardust. As brothers of the wild beasts and cousins of the flowers in the fields, we all carry the history of the cosmos. Just by breathing, we are linked to all other beings that have lived on the planet. All other beings that have ever lived on the planet. For example, still today, we are breathing in, this is each of us, millions of atomic nuclei from the fire that burned Joan of Arc in 1431. And some of the molecules from Julius Caesar's dying breath. Every day, one of us. That's how interconnected we are. When a living organism dies and decays, its atoms are released back into the environment and eventually become integrated into other organisms. Our bodies contain about a billion atoms that once belonged to the tree under which the Buddha attained enlightenment. <laughs> so. Yes. So, this appearance, all of the different appearances of multiplicity come down one way or another to uh, the basic illusion of duality. And so we really need to only overcome a duality. We don't need to solve the problem of how the, the, we are one with the six billion people who live on the planet now and the, I don't know what the number would be of other organisms now, or the number of organisms that have ever lived or, or might live. But we don't need to do that. We just need to be able to overcome a duality. The duality between mind and matter, the duality between uh, the... Uh, uh, Consciousness and the object of consciousness. The duality between self and other. That's, that's the duality that we need to overcome. It is the illusion of separateness that uh, supports this perceived duality of self and other. And you asked how this relates to emptiness. And I think we've already seen, I hope so, and if not, uh, or maybe anyway, we, we can go into this further, but this multiplicity are appearances and we have discussed several good evidences, solid evidences, for the fact that these appearances are empty of being the way they appear to us to be, right? Do we need to say anything further about the things or the uh, emptiness? Empty, emptiness means that all everything that we experience is empty of having a nature of being the way it appears to us. 
but rather that appearance is a projection of our mind, or that appearance is something that arises in our mind. Are we all okay with that idea and understand it from previous discussions? Okay. And this is not to deny the existence of anything outside of ourselves. That would be a mistake to say that, well, everything is empty, that means nothing exists except my mind in which these appearances arise. And that would be that would be a rather time-consuming topic to go into. But, and, and so really I don't think it, uh, it's particularly uh, appropriate or, or necessary, but I just want to make sure that that's clear, that to say something is empty. Well, to say that something is empty, to say that everything is empty, means that there is a problem with our notion of how things exist. And so if we cling to the notion that we normally have of how things exist, in that sense, when we say that everything is empty, we'd have to say that everything doesn't exist. But when we say that it's empty, we're not really denying its existence. We're denying its self-existence as what appears to us. Because otherwise, we would be reducing everything to a kind of nothingness. And emptiness is not nothingness. But... Emptiness is what underlies the appearances that we see. And so, the duality that we need to overcome is overcome through the unification of appearances and emptiness. Yeah? So how do you um, answer uh, when a Buddhist, or or people has a Buddhist background, or a person don't has a a Buddhist background, ask you that we are going to Everybody is going to die, and everything is changing, so life is meaningless. Yeah. How do you answer that? Good question. There's, yes, that's how, how do you answer that question, and how do you keep from slipping into that feeling? Because you see, that is a feeling that when people uh, have a powerful insight into impermanence, and they realize that everything is is changing. And when they have an insight into the, the, uh, that, that they don't have a permanent self-nature, that uh, there isn't some substantial being that is going to be uh, reincarnated or go to heaven or, or something like this. And when they recognize that all of the things that they have previously uh, 
attached meaning to, to well, that they, they attach to in one way or another to give their life meaning, are in fact empties and projections of their mind. The experience they have can be a terrible state of, of despair, of loss. But the only reason that they experience that is that they are still attached to the idea of self. And they are still experiencing this from the point of view of self. It's a very difficult thing to explain to somebody who has no background, who has not, who doesn't have all the different components of the understanding. So where do you find a starting point to explain it to them? Because what it sounds like is that it's the worst case of materialism in that, that uh, we're, we're just a temporary being and that you're going to, to die and that's it. Uh, added to which, even all the stuff out there is only a projection of the mind and, and uh, it has no meaning either. So. And people would think, uh, I just pursue uh, what I want. The people who what? Pursuing what I want. Just uh, chasing what I want, what I desire, and uh, satisfy myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, pressure. That's right. People who take that attitude, that is one of the conclusions they come to, is that, yeah, well, I might as well do anything I want. I might as well, you know, have as much pleasure as I can. Even more than that, this idea is so horrible, I need to fill my, I need to make myself so busy with distractions that uh, I, I don't need to face this. It's called, in that sense, the existential challenge of meaninglessness, which people seek to overcome through distraction. But, so, do you, how, how do you suggest to encounter that? Well, I'm from really China, so a lot of people has this kind of view because uh, yeah. a lot of people have done uh, as a spiritual belief. So right. this is a big problem in my society. Um, but oftentimes, I will ask this question not by men, but by Buddhists. By Buddhists. By which? By Buddhists. By Buddhists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. You're often asked this question by Buddhists. Yeah. yeah. You're a Buddhist? But since, because of Donovan, um, if they don't have a uh, religious belief, they will not answer, uh, ask this kind of question. Mm-hmm. So they already take a view of, of their life. But uh, some uh, Buddhists or some people just uh, just get into Buddhism, so they have this kind of idea and say, wow, that's horrible. And, and, and well, what's the meaning of life in this insanity? Well, the, it's a difficult and challenging thing. And um, understanding the emptiness of everything doesn't really help. Because uh, people who understand the emptiness, but they, don't, they haven't really grasped it, uh, the, the, the truth at the deepest level, and haven't let go of the attachment to their sense of self, they uh, become extremely, uh, uh, you say, narcissistic 
You know, they feel if everything, everything then begins to revolve around them, and everything's empty, so nothing matters. And uh, this also can uh, put them in a position of being very manipulative of others, because to the degree that they understand the way that uh, things are empty and that our minds project, they may quite willingly manipulate the projections of others to satisfy themselves. And they might actually do this from a place of uh, uh, presenting themselves as a spiritual teacher. Because you can come to that level of understanding without having having come to the point that produces the, uh, the, the liberating uh, transformation and the uh, uh, and the moral basis the basis for compassion. So what you're talking about is really, it's a serious problem. Somebody coming to Buddhism, most of the people in the world who claim to be Buddhists have a very superficial understanding. They grasp onto the idea of rebirth as reincarnation and of making merit and uh, of making good karma and um, it fulfills their needs. But when they move out of that to the level of understanding the deeper meaning of Buddhism, it can, be, uh, it can become very difficult and very disillusioned. The, that's why the practice side is absolutely so essential. You have to, you really have to have uh, insight and understanding that comes experientially through practice. If, uh, and even somebody who takes up the study of Buddhism scholastically may come to a conclusion that is really, it's quite pessimistic uh, and negative and nihilistic and come to the conclusion that the Buddhist teaching uh, is, is nihilistic. It is pessimistic. Life is suffering. Well, that's true. Life is suffering. And uh, there, there is no self. And so uh, it can become uh, very unsatisfying. The only thing, the only thing uh, that can save anyone in this is to actually gain understanding through experience. And that's what that's what will make a difference. But, there's a lot of things that we talk about, a lot of understanding that we have. Unfortunately, fortunately, we already start out, most of us, with those ingredients in our mind stream that will support us through the process of uh, getting beyond these problems and, and coming to this understanding at a level of meaning. I mean, you must have, had, you must have done something yourself to confront these problems. Just as you said, your, um, your existence is being an uh, example, practice, uh, before we save the world, we save us first, save ourselves first. 
Mm-hmm. Save yourself first. Yeah. In this case, it's necessary. <laughs> might, might not always be the most noble thing to do if the house is on fire, but in this case, <laughs> you've got to save yourself. And oftentimes, <clears throat> I think it's quite easy for people um, to understand that, say, the house is uh, temporary, you know, it's changing, the past is changing, so mm-hmm. people, uh, it's more difficult to find there's no self. Yeah. Still, if I I'm I have some. Uh, I'm not changing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's right. You still have, even as your understanding of selflessness grows, you're not uh, devoid of a sense of self. You still feel like you have one, right? And that's both good and bad. That's good up to a point, but then when you become too, too completely confronted with impermanence and, and uh, the truth, the truth of suffering, then that will be at that point. That sense of self is going to be a problem once again because the mind-created sense of self, your mind is going to process this information and say, "Wow, are we ever in trouble?" And it's going to produce the feelings that go along with being in a lot of trouble. So, we've got to, you know, first of all, you'd have to, I I think, explain to somebody what you have to understand for yourself, is, and come to believe that your mind is creating all of this. You have to understand that at at some point you have to recognize this before you can really go much further. You have to accept that your experience of suffering is something that's created by your mind. And your mind only creates experience of suffering because your mind believes in the sense of self that it creates. And you are not your mind. You, as the experiencer though, uh, your whole objective in your life has always been to be free from suffering and to be happy. And what the path promises is that you will be forever free from suffering and be happier than you've ever been before. So at this point, before you've actually attained any kind of understanding, there has to be a certain element of faith present. And that faith has to be sufficient to motivate you to practice. But then as, a, as you practice, you begin to have very tangible experiences that support your faith. And uh, that support the uh, basis for it. You have experiences of being, uh, of being happy in a way that is not dependent upon external circumstances. You have experiences of realizing that you don't have to suffer in exactly those for exactly those reasons that you have been used to suffering, and you find that you are able to let go of suffering. You find you experience less uh, agitation and distress and peace of mind because 
the, the practice does bear fruit all the way along from, from the very beginning. And this, it's the fact that it does that sustains your faith that the end of the path isn't going to be some hopeless nihilism, but rather, in fact, a complete transcending of suffering. Um, what the Buddha said is ehipatsiko, uh, come and see. Come and see. And this is really this is really what anyone has to do. They have to come and see for themselves. There's really there's a limit to uh, you. you uh, we can talk a lot. We can inspire. Inspire. We can inspire. <laughs> uh, we can uh, explain. Uh, we can point out uh, a, a lot of uh, uh, obvious uh, truths that lead somebody. But ultimately, they have to. They have to try it for themselves. They have to do it for themselves, and they have to satisfy themselves. Um, and until they do it, there's a limit to how far they'll come. Which is why, you know, you might ask, I ask this question myself. So, uh, why in most of the Buddhist countries of the world do does the Sangha allow most Buddhists to believe things that are just simply not true according to Buddhism. You know, have you ever asked, you ever asked yourself that? What's that? I have wondered that, yeah. Yeah. You know, have you wondered that? Yeah. Yeah. It seems to me the Buddhist country, I'm not trying to degrade them, they really have difficult in social structure, white exploitations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's a different question, but the question that I've asked is, you know, uh, temples holding ceremonies for people to do offerings uh, for uh, dead ancestors. You know, now this, this, these things, all of these practices actually are good and beneficial in their own way. Making of merit, the things, you know, the system of uh, thinking that uh, underlies the making of merit causes people to perform good actions. And the belief in karma, even if uh, the, it is projected onto a reincarnation and a next life and a next life and a next life, it leads people to a more uh, uh, moral and ethical kind of behavior. So good comes of it. So. And that's the reason why it is the way it is. Buddhism really, it is, it is such a sophisticated institution that it has these different levels. And anyone who wants to is always free to go to a deeper level of understanding. But while people are as yet at the level that they're at, they're as yet unable to grasp and understand and would in fact be uh, quite uh, disturbed uh, if they under, understood the deeper significance of these things. 
they're they're allowed and encouraged to view things in what we might say a slightly distorted way. Or you might look at it as a grossly distorted way, but <laughs> that's a distorted way. Yes? I think in terms of the karma thing, <coughs> rigor, I think when Buddhism developed, originally Buddha, he directly interacted with his disciple after he died. And, and I think Buddhism evolved, slowly becomes a religion. And once you have to deal with the mass, mm-hmm. and I think the, this karma becomes only moral constraint to mm-hmm. the mass, that to, to do good or behave in a certain way. Yeah. And I think even in America, I remember, I think Venerable Bodhi, he translated all the Pali texts and he's a very respectable Buddhist scholar. As a matter of fact, he took a very strong stand that karma, that he think karma is the one provides social constraint in terms of, you know, because I think Buddhism actually is very sophisticated. There are two levels. One is the <coughs> absolute level, as you, we discussed mm-hmm. here. But then at the other level is the relative level. Yeah. Uh, level. And we all live in a relative world. Yes. And all our value system and culture, mm-hmm. political, social, are all relative. So at the relative level, you need something. That's right. You now to deal with the mass, because mm-hmm. not everybody can understand the absolute level. And I think in this world, I would think five percent of the population would be pretty lucky. That's 90 right. For pe- Ninety-five percent people really live in a very unaware life. Mm-hmm. You know, actually, Sina Han said once, that these guys riding on the horse, and he said, "Where are you going?" He said, "Well, the go- the horse will live where I'm." And then most of the people are. That's right, yes. They're, they're, yes so, so when it becomes an organized religion, then you need something for a moral constraint. Mm-hmm. But there is a, there is a <coughs> level of, I mean, this, at, at the relative level, there is, a, a, there is tremendous value. And it's not false in the sense that it leads in the right direction. Somebody who practices virtue, even if the motivation is somewhat uh, uh, distorted, as I said, they actually are making changes in themselves which are leading in the right direction and if at any point that uh, they, they wish to go to a deeper level of understanding and practice, they can. And that's what does happen all of the time. But, uh, the question you're asking, though, is we do have we have the, this problem of people that are on the boundary between the two Buddhas, Buddhisms, the popular Buddhism, which provides a lot of simplistic ideas and a certain amount of comfort and the more sophisticated level of Buddhism, which actually turns some of those things that we hold on to most tightly on their head. And uh, to directly confront the issue of 
of selflessness, non-self. This is something that, this is a big step to be able to do this, to be with a group of people who can do this with. You know, in a more public teaching, we probably teach a lot of the other stuff that I've talked about, but not really, just not really get into that to such a great depth, because that would bring people to this point of confrontation with what they're clinging to that they might not be ready to come to yet. But it is also, it's, it's impossible to bring somebody quickly to the point of, of actual awakening, of actual letting go of the attachment and illusion of self and understanding the deeper truth without these things coming up. And so this, this area of difficulty, always, this, it always has to be bridged in one way or another. It's always encountered. Uh, and somebody, uh, as you're aware, when somebody undertakes an insight practice, it's going to lead them to direct experience of truths which, to whatever degree, they're still attached to the sense of self and the reality of the things that are projected by their mind, it's going to lead to distress. And intellectually, are going to be raised the questions and somebody's trying to understand the Dharma and so they think about this and go deeper and deeper and they come to this kind of question of, you know, uh, or this kind of, uh, it's not a question, they come to this kind of feeling, this interpretation, this doubt and this uncertainty uh, that where they really want to go, where this is taking them. This is a bit of a scary place to go. It takes away all the security that we're used to. But if it's combined with practice, it does so in uh, a wonderfully gentle way because it, it provides so many benefits. You know, you, you gradually... There, there is one simile where uh, uh, the Buddha spoke and he said that... Uh, Entering into this dharma is like entering into the ocean. It goes gradually deeper and deeper rather than suddenly dropping you off. But at some point, at some point, there is no ground between your feet or beneath your feet, no matter what. There is a point that <laughs> in entering into the ocean that you have to pass that. The oneness of things we sense that and we know that and it's obvious. And this is, I feel, one of the things that if we entertain an understanding of that, at the same time, we are coaxing ourselves to give up our attachment to self, then uh, it allows for this transition to go much easier. When you give up yourself, you gain the universe. And that really true is true. Um, when people, just to illustrate that, there's two different kinds of mystical experiences that I find that people often have. And they're not, they're not an experience of enlightenment, but they're an experience that brings them 
very close to enlightenment because it brings them to some of these profound truths that they need to understand. One of them is where they clearly perceive the emptiness of phenomena directly and experientially. And, uh, but they still have this sense of an I. There is still the duality. And this is, this is what must be overcome, is this duality. But I, I call this the dualistic mystical experience because it's, it's, it's obviously dualistic. The person clearly sees the impermanence, the emptiness of things arising and passing away. And they have the standpoint of being the aloof, objective witness, the uninvolved witness as they observe the rising and passing away of phenomena. And they, they see the transparency of phenomena, the, the, the way that these things are, are causally related, and uh, of course all the needless suffering and concern and worry and the artificial importance that we attach to things becomes very obvious. And this is very liberating for a person because it helps to separate them from a lot of the uh, worry and concern and pain and uh, uh, that uh, attachment to things and to situations and external phenomenon has. When you see them as empty, then you don't have so much clinging and attachment, and uh, it, it, it makes it much easier. It's very wonderful. But there is still this strong sense of self, so they haven't really quite reached the final goal. And what it is, it's a wonderful experience. It gives them a lot of insight, and the more often they can repeat it, the better. The other kind of mystical experience is, is what we call uh, the unified mystical experience. Um, and this is another very wonderful thing that people have. It's where they temporarily lose all sense of self. And they feel at one with everything. They look at a flower, you know, and there's no sense of separation from it. I, I am the flower. My consciousness and this flower are one and the same in the sky and the trees. And it is such an incredibly wonderful, exhilarating discovery. And it affects you so deeply and fills you with so much joy and love and compassion and just being at one with everything. Because you've allowed the boundary that defines you to dissolve. And that is a wonderful experience to have and a wonderful experience to repeat because it helps you to it helps you to get used to the idea that not having a self is not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing at all. And it makes it much easier. But it too is not, you know, it, it's not the final answer. You haven't really because just as in the first case you saw the emptiness of things, but you still experienced it from a perspective, a dualistic perspective of um, a self-existent, separate consciousness that is observing the emptiness of all things. In the other one, you are not really understanding 
the emptiness of things, the empty, the, the apparent reality of everything else is still there, but you have lost your bound, separation boundary with it. And what you're after is the experience where both of these are true, where there is no boundary separating you from anything else. And the emptiness, both of the appearance of self and the uh, appearances that make up everything else is, is clear. That is the truly liberating experience. Or I should say the, the truly liberated experience. The liberating experience itself is basically when the mind stops fabricating this whole mess. The mind stops creating all these appearances. The mind stops creating self. When the mind just stops, even for a moment, stops its creating, stops its fabricating, what happens is the the true nature of things is, is experienced in a way that changes the mind. And thereafter, it functions differently. There was an experience where uh, the fabrications of mind had ceased, and once they've ceased, then their nature as fabrications uh, has, been, has been seen. Doesn't mean it's fully understood, but it's seen. And this is what produces the change. Can happen in a lot of different ways. Some people, it happen, they, they can't even tell you what happened. It's, just, it's like it's a gap. It's like a blank space in their memory. And uh, other people, uh, it happens in subtle ways. Some people, it happens as a glorious experience of. Uh, just pure consciousness. The consciousness that is there when there is no self and there is no object of consciousness, there is just that clear, luminous, clear light of mind present. And they remember it and know that. So, uh, And it can happen in probably an infinite number of different ways. Because actually most of how it happens is what your mind fabricates about the event after it's happened. <laughs> if you see what I mean. Your mind stops creating reality, and so its true nature, which is emptiness and non-dual, is evident, and in some form or another registers on the mind. Then the mind gets going again, and the first thing it has to do is try to interpret the experience you just had. And some people, if a person um, believed in a god of some kind, then they might describe that that and say, "Well, I just became one with the Godhead. My soul disappeared. I surrendered my soul and became one with the Godhead, and that's all there was. And it was so wonderful. And for and that person is transformed. They've awakened." But the words they put it in can be very misleading to other people. Oh, God, God, okay. So so now they're working with concepts. And that's why you can't rely on the descriptions. But you also can't say that somebody said, I had a mystical experience, I became one with God. 
Uh, and you say, well, oh, you're not enlightened then because Buddha said that there isn't a God and blah, blah, blah. Because that would be mistaking too. That would be misunderstanding. But emptiness means the mind fabricates in order to make sense to itself of what it has experienced. You know, or somebody might be a, 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 a Hindu or a, a, a practitioner of, of uh, Vedic religion and say, ah, Atman, the true nature of the Atman, which is Brahman, was realized. And it doesn't matter what words they put it into. What what matters is that it's an experience of things as they really are, which made a change in the way the mind works from that point. And they are liberated as a result of it. Their mind, they don't even need to know it happened. That's not important. You know, it's, you don't, a, a lot of people think to, to become enlightened, to become awakened, is to have some incredible event happen to you and that, you know, somehow that's the essence of it. But it's not. A lot of times an incredible event does happen to you. You have an incredible experience that lasts for a second or lasts for 15 minutes or whatever it is. The essence of it is that there was an experience of the true nature of reality which caused the mind to work differently in the future. So that amongst the things that the mind knows is that this self that it fabricates is just a fabrication because there has been this experience when it was not fabricated. And to some degree the mind understands that all of everything else is also its own fabrication. And so this alters the way the mind works from then on. Um, there is, now in terms of this oneness, the sameness, we look, <clears throat> we look at other people and we can see ourselves in them. And we see the suffering of someone else and we know their suffering. It's not a mystery there. It's not something impenetrable. While it's true that we ordinarily can't go outside of our own mind space and enter into the mind space of another. There is no question from our experience that we are the same. We deny that in many ways all the time. But it isn't because we haven't known it. It isn't because it isn't evident. Because it is. Right? Like right now, Look at anybody in this room. and You may not know the appearances that their mind is generating. You may not know their inner landscape. But we are all the same. At the level of the, this consciousness, we're all the same, right? And suffering is suffering. And joy is joy. I just would like to distinguish a little more uh, when you say that uh, the unification of uh, the feeling like uh, you you mentioned that see the flower look like uh, Mm -hmm. between that and then you say the the mind really stop 
and really uh, uh, sees uh, those those uh, separation. Okay, what's what's since that it's, there's a gap, and I fully understand this unification, mm-hmm. yeah. the temporary. But right. what's the what's what's the link for, for that? To the the finally mind sees the, the link between what I call the unified meta, uh, mystical experience mm-hmm. and uh, the experience of awakening. Yeah. Uh, the relationship is that in that unified mystical experience your mind has stopped generating the boundary of self and the distinction of self. Um, but it still is manufacturing a world of appearances. It is still making a world of appearances, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. Okay. So the connection between them is that it's only part way there. The mind hasn't really stopped. It's just stopped doing one of the things it does. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. Then what, what part is still not stopped? The mind making everything else. Oh. See, the mind has to stop. It has to stop fabricating every part of reality. Well, that seems that seems to be the way it happens. What does that mean? When the mind stops, the world stops, and when the world stops, you see what's left. Then you won't be able to see or feel. Or That's right. Anything. There, there's nobody there to see or feel. I still need help for this part. Mm-hmm. Um, I fully understand for the unification that part, but still I just want to see what's the, the other parts. The important, the important part to understand is that even in the unification, the mind is still making all these appearances and the mind is still believing in those appearances as being substantially real. Oh, okay. okay. I still get something. Okay, so until uh, the mind really go beyond the appearance, mm-hmm. right? Just say, uh, because the appearance still see, oh, this is a flower. Even though I I'm, I'm look mm-hmm. like part of that, but still mm-hmm. think it's a flower. That's right. So you say, take out that, just take out that mm-hmm. flower. Right. Just no any category or, or something in between. Mm-hmm. Is that what you mean? Uh, <coughs> well, <coughs> sorry. You have a thought? Yeah. Um, it's, you have to see that uh, uh, it is still a product of the mind. Your mind uh, see it, identify it. <coughs> if you look at something, it's really all you see is color. You know, our eyes is a light-sensitive organ. You know, all, all we see is really just light of different color. But then the mind makes, uh, distinguish this color of this shape as this object. And this color of this shape as that object. And we can judge distance based on this judgment of the of this shape and color and clarity. And uh, it's all the product of the mind. And I think what the teacher is saying that uh, we have to understand, you know, uh, the world that we understand is a product of a fabrication of our interpretation of what this 
world is based on our senses, based on our you know thinking. That, that is correct. But the thing that we really have to get to is it goes beyond this I and mind. There is, the, you know, your, your words and your thinking, there's still an I. I. I see, I understand, I know. There's no I. In this experience, there is nothing. There is no flower, there is no color, there is no nothing, there is no duality, there is no separation of knower and known. There's not a knower and a nothingness, because emptiness is not the same thing as nothingness. You can have a knower and a nothingness, but and, and that's something that you can deliberately experience. It's, uh, it's, it's uh, one of the higher jhanas, and it's called the jhana of the base of nothingness. And there is a knower and nothingness, but it is not the experience of emptiness. This is, it is not until your mind stops completely that you have the direct experience of emptiness, the total experience. Empty, and what is emptiness? I mean, what does emptiness look like? It has no appearance. And if the experience is empty of self, there's no one experiencing it. Okay? So, the mind is this thing. It stops, and the world it creates stops. And then it starts up again. The wonderful thing that happens is that somehow or another, and I'm not even sure how this happens, somehow, that experience registers, uh, when the mind stops, the experience of the emptiness changes the way the mind, mind works from that on. Yeah. So, for the unification, that's kind of feeling to that part. I kind of sense that. But is any um, practice we can do in order to cross that, or just uh, keeping observing until suddenly, you know, well, the, the <clears throat> yes, keep observing, and what there needs to be is very clear understanding into the three marks. Because the three marks, when they're not understood, will keep the mind from stopping. The mind will keep on going. It's like it's like a monkey swinging through the trees. And when this hand lets go, this hand grabs. And when this hand lets go, this hand grabs. And as long as you keep grabbing, then you know it, it, it won't stop. So as long as you're not totally convinced of the impermanence and the emptiness and the unsatisfactoriness of mental and physical objects, your mind is going to keep grasping onto mental and physical objects. It's going to keep generating and grasping, and, and it's going to keep going. When the other thing that you have to have is equanimity, uh, you have to have whatever is occurring, whether it's pleasant or painful, uh, that you have to have no reactivity to it, because. If you, if it's pleasant and you react to it, you're going to 
grasp onto it through desire. And if it's unpleasant and you react to it, you're going to grasp onto it through aversion. And you're going to immediately, your mind is going to create a new reality that it hopes is going to be different. So there has to be equanimity. And so the experience you have is you keep looking and understanding and it becomes clearer and clearer that yes, everything is impermanent. There are no things. There is nothing that's substantial. Everything is empty. This sense I have of myself, even though it feels real, it's empty. And it has to become really clear that if I cling to something that's impermanent and empty, it's like grabbing a red-hot iron. It's going to burn me. To cling to things that are impermanent and empty only is going to cause something. They are unsatisfactory by nature. And then what's going to happen is that monkey of your mind is going to let go of a branch and it's going to get ready to grab the next one and then it's going to say, wait a minute. I've been, I know what this is about. This is, this is impermanent and empty and suffering. And it's not going to grab. If it doesn't grab, then for at least a short time, you're in the free fall between <laughs> moments of creation. And now, Can you fall on the ground? <laughs> the wonderful thing about it is, is that you don't, crash to the jungle floor and that's the end of everything but rather you come back to swinging through the trees but it's a whole lot more fun <laughs> so, so let, me, let me see that if I understand correct, correctly so the gap in order to link that uh, once I have unified that feeling mm-hmm. link that is deeper come back to look at the uh, three characters the impermanent uh, emptiness and uh, dukkha. Mm-hmm. See that even deeper and in a subtle way, keeping keeping mm-hmm. price that. Then we'll get to that. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. The insights become so. Uh, and, and this, like I said, remember as I said before, enlightenment's an accident, and the practice just makes this accident prone. But the more completely and deeply that you can understand the truth of these three marks, then the more likely that you are to have this experience. And so you just keep doing that. You just keep doing it. You just keep uh, reaffirming in every way that you can. Indeed, this is empty. Indeed, I am empty. Indeed, mind is empty. It is, it's all empty. And keep reaffirming, reaffirming that, that, uh, these appearances are arising out of craving and desire and they only create suffering. Okay. So, what you're working towards is, is is the getting to the place where your mind no longer has, you know, it has this momentum of craving and desire and wanting and wanting and wanting. And you have to exhaust that. And the other thing is that as long as there is a doer, as long as there is someone striving, 
then uh, you haven't you haven't really recognized selflessness, and this doer is going to keep grasping. So there's an element of surrender, of letting go, of keep refining that. Just let go, let go, let go. Just see, see what is, and let go of uh, of clinging. See what is, and let go of expectation. See what is, and let go of preconceived ideas. See what is, abandoned views, you know, and see what is, and surrender, surrender, surrender. Practice, practice surrender. Uh, practice just accepting what is in whatever form comes up. You know, this is what your mind is doing right now. Accept it, surrender to it, surrender to this. And in that way, the doer will stop doing, and the fabricator will stop fabricating, and the house builder will stop house building. At least for a moment. The house is still there, and you'll be back in it shortly. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you can get to the point where the house builder quits entirely. Yeah? Um, did you both ask the question at the same time? Okay. We are competing. <laughs> okay. uh, sometimes we, uh, we wake up in the morning mm-hmm. and we find ourselves, like this morning, I, I use like one minute to figure out how I am here in America in this, uh, mm-hmm. in this uh, house. So, but I know I'm sleeping, so what kind of a state of mind it is? We wake up and we don't know where. Yeah. <clears throat> well, it's a it's a state of mind where it's actually called the the vanga, the the uh, uh, stream of uh, uh, of becoming. You know, it's where there's consciousness, but the contents of consciousness are just all the old stuff that you carried along. You know, and so uh, coming out of that, and your mind sort of revs up and starts perceiving and taking objects and. Um, so you can that that's what that disorientation is. Yes. Um, these experiences that you were talking about, do they all necessarily happen in meditation? No, they don't. All three of them can happen at any time. Is that what's right? that? They, they it it all happens in in, in an instant, but you can be. Uh, happened to a woman as she was stepping onto a bus in Paris. Which experience? The direct perception of emptiness? Yes. Wow. Yeah. Someone you know? What's that? Someone that you know? Uh, no, this is someone who I, I read an account of their experience. And I've been looking into the variety of different experiences uh, and uh, it's a topic of interest of mine. I'm talking to people. Now, other people, like I say, one person I know, his experience is, it was just a blank, a gap, but he really knew something had happened afterwards, but didn't remember anything. It was just like a gap in his consciousness. Yeah. And I was very surprised at that. Yeah. But it turns out that for people that practice in a particular way, that's commonly the kind of experience they have. So I think it's related to that. 
People that practice in another way commonly have the experience of uh, of some period of just pure consciousness, no self, no object, just pure naked consciousness, the clear light of the mind. So it is it is dependent on practice and it's dependent on people's preconceived notions and it's probably dependent on a whole lot of things that I haven't got the faintest clue about yet. <laughs> Ray, Ray, do you remember Ray, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Ray mentioned that he, his experience is he wake up uh, during the middle of the night mm-hmm. and go to the restroom and when, I, when he come back, suddenly everything so clear. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, this one person. Uh, uh, it's not okay. mm-hmm. You mean he was enlightened? He understand the just teacher about that whole feeling, see the true nature and whole thing. And I was curious uh, what his experience and uh, he described to me. He just, no, no, he just routinely, he, he usually get, get up and go to restroom during the middle of the night. And he just routinely get up and go back and come back and, and lie down and everything is so clear. Of course, he like the teacher say, this is not so what he, he has taken back to me. I'll get up tonight. Huh? I'll get up tonight. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think the point is that um, you know that's accident, just like you mentioned. Yeah, to just practice whatever we can do to practice, and and not expect it, anything. And when the time is ripen, and it will happen. That's yes, that's right. That's exactly. Right. You create the conditions, and the conditions. That is the wonderful thing. Uh, about Buddhism is that a lot of attention has been uh, paid to systematically being able to create the conditions. And the uh, most important conditions are the ones that I mentioned, that you completely understand in the present moment these, the three characteristics. And, well, I'll tell you one kind of experience. Something arises, a mental object arises, and in the process of the mind uh, perceiving, you know, an object arises, and then there's a uh, process of recognition, and, and it becomes real. But in the process of that arising, instead of the, what the what the person about to undergo this transformation and experience they have is they don't see the object as they normally would. They see it as, for example, impermanence. This is impermanence. This is what impermanence, this is impermanence. So they see it as impermanence itself. They see it as impermanence itself. And because that recognition of impermanence is accompanied by a uh, 
recognition of suffering and uh, also a recognition of emptiness of self, then the mind turns away, rejects it. Instead of completing the process of grasping, it turns away and abandons, and that's how it happens. And when it happens that way, it's actually described in the scriptures as being uh, uh, the uh, that the awakening has been achieved, uh, and the emergence is by means of uh, the. It's called the signless emergence, and I have to explain that in, in the. Buddhist technical material, the sign refers, or the word that we translate as sign, refers to the appearance of things as permanent. So when somebody sees something, and it doesn't mean lasting forever permanent, it means as being a a substantial entity, seeing something as, uh, you know, being enduring, even if it's only for a moment, or having a mental object arise and seeing it as being enduring, having its own reality. That is the appearance. That's the sign. So signless means seeing it without the appearance. Anamita. And it means seeing it as impermanent rather than as permanent. And so a person who has been doing a practice where they cultivate a very strong awareness of impermanence, then in the part of the the practice, an object arises and they see it as impermanence rather than as an object. Mm -hmm. And then together with the other two characteristics being an understanding of them well developed and the meditator being in a state of equanimity, the mind abandons the object and turns away from it. Might be experienced uh, the way that could be experienced is that the object, which is now only seen as impermanent, you don't see any other characteristics to it at all. Now, mental objects, when they arise, I don't know if you've noticed this, but they sort of fade and disintegrate. They become fuzzy and disappear. Sense objects, they sort of are cut off. There's a point that, you know, it's there and then it's cut off. But mental objects sort of just evaporate. So the person, the mental object, now is just this realization of impermanence. And their consciousness is riveted on this object perceived as impermanence as it goes away. And so the mind follows, you know, the object came out of emptiness and it goes back into emptiness. And consciousness is riveted to it and follows the object into emptiness. Rather than the mind, usually as an object fades, the monkey grabs the next branch, another object. But instead, the consciousness stays and follows the object into emptiness. And the person experiences it in whatever way they experience. That's one way that it comes about. It doesn't sound like it... Uh this, you know, there's an experience of oneness. It's an identification of impermanence, an identification of not-self, and, uh, and identification of those things, not necessarily it means that this person feels this oneness that you're talking about. 
Okay, the oneness, and, and no, re- no reason that they necessarily would. They're going to have an experience, and their mind might assemble it in different ways. Okay, and, uh, but they might have an experience of uh, oneness if, and now that the emergence through signlessness could perhaps lead to the experience of pure consciousness, but that's, uh, I, I don't personally know that it could lead to that experience. Maybe it does. But, so the person, that person might not have an experience of of oneness. Someone who has an experience of what we're calling pure consciousness, the clear light mind, is having an experience of oneness, although they might not recognize it. Not until they've repeated this many times. And that's the thing. This is not a one-time occurrence. it, It needs to be repeated. But, but the first time it happens, it makes a permanent change in a person. But, uh, and, and someone like my friend who can't remember the experience, well, I, there is an, an awareness in his mind, or let's put it this way, as I told you before, we're already aware of oneness. But what happens is that... Uh, the illusion of separateness comes up and blocks our seeing what's right in front of us. Uh, and uh, desire and aversion make us deny oneness. We feel oneness with other people, but it makes it deny us. Deny it. So the person who has this signless emergence and perhaps has a period of uh, just a gap, and then afterwards, you say, if you ask them, say, well, did you have an experience of oneness? No, not me. Uh, that's, you know, and it really happens that someone like that would say, yeah, and, uh, you know, enlightenment is, an experience, is not an experience of oneness because, you know, I didn't have an experience of oneness. But they just don't know. That's all. Okay. So they might not have it, but what you'll see in the way they behave is that they they're no longer so obscured of recognizing the oneness both the the, uh, the, the oneness their being a part of all things is far more a part of the way they are now from then on and also uh, you see when somebody when somebody has an awakening experience uh, it affects them morally and it affects them in terms of virtue. It's because desire and aversion no longer have the same power as they did before to uh, cause you to deny the oneness that you see in other people. And so a person naturally behaves with more virtue because all of the principles of Buddhist virtue are principles of not harming others, not causing harm to others and not causing harm to yourself. This person, as a result of their practice, knows that uh, unvirtuous, uh, unkind actions, actions based in greed and aversion, are harmful to them because they've seen the effect it has on their own mind. 
and they see the effect that they have on others, and there is not the same sense of, uh, of separateness with others. And so it changes their behavior. It doesn't matter that the person said, oh, I had an experience of oneness. They don't have to have an experience of oneness. But they have a manifestation of a greater understanding of oneness. As, as you proceed on the path, you know, as there are distinct sort of landmark stages along the path, and the oneness becomes more evident. But it's in becoming an arhat that the total experience of non-separateness is realized. So, but before a person becomes an arhat, they can, and hopefully will, have experiences of what I call the union of appearances and emptiness. That's a question I want to ask. Would you elaborate more? All right. Appearances. Every all appearances are have the nature of emptiness, right? And so in that sense, what they are appearances, they're illusions. We call them appearances, we call them illusions. Okay. But that doesn't mean that they're non-existent. Because they do, uh, you, you experience them. You experience appearances. They're, they're empty of a nature of being what they appear to be. But they are a reality in terms of your experience. And also, they have a nature of uh, being dependent. They, they, they are uh, dependent origination operates in their production. They arise out of uh, desire and aversion and clinging. They arise out of perceptions that are determined by karmic formations. So they are dependent in their nature, but they don't have a substantial existence from their own side. So we look at them and we say they are empty. And then you understand the nature of the mind as emptiness. So you still have this duality. The empty nature of the mind in which these appearances arise. Uh, And the appearances are the dependent nature. So, all that's left to completely dissolve this duality is, is the realization that the emptiness and the appearances are the same. That there is only one thing. Now, emptiness, the mind is empty, the things that are empty, uh, consciousness itself, that pure light of the mind, 
doesn't have qualities of beginning and ending and changing and being one place or another. It's outside of time and it's outside of uh, space. It's, which means that it's also not divisible into, you know, there's not multiple emptinesses. There's not multiple uh, clear light minds. But in another way, there's not multiple Buddha natures. What we're calling the Buddha nature is that emptiness. If emptiness had was divisible in space and time, it wouldn't be empty, would it? So, logically, it has to be a kind of oneness. So we experience appearances and we know that we're empty and we experience emptiness. If we bring those two together, we have the union of appearances and emptiness. And then we have erased the final duality. Do you need help? Hmm? Should we save it for another time? Because uh, the teacher might be yes. very tired. Actually, we've gone quite a bit over time here. That's true. Uh, we'll save it for tomorrow. And most of these last things that we're talking about, they're not going to be useful to you at this stage. It doesn't. We're not really doing a good thing for ourselves by talking about this. We're telling, telling fairy tales now. <laughs> The union of emptiness and appearances is a nice fairy tale that will allow you to go peacefully to sleep and have good dreams. <laughs> but you cannot grasp it conceptually. And so it won't make any difference to ask a whole lot of more questions and to try to answer those questions. Because whatever we say about it is, is not going to be... Uh, Yes. Just to clarify the language, the word. So what you're saying is, samsara is nirvana, nirvana. That's, Am I correct? Or that I is, totally misunderstand? No, that is one way that it is often put. Yeah. When you say that, of course, it's very confusing if you know somebody understands samsara in terms of... Uh, suffering rather than in the true nature of samsara as being empty appearances. But that is in fact one, a, a very true way that you can put it, uh, okay. samsara. So I didn't one. misunderstand you? Hmm? I didn't mis- no, misunderstand No, you did not misunderstand. Yeah. And can a person go from an aria to an aria in one lifetime? Uh, sure, why not? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> I mean, they have I mean that's returns, that. One's returner and no returner. And that's right. Well, but what they mean. First of all, the literal interpretation. I mean, we're going over time. We're, that's I don't know. But we're having so much fun. We're having so much fun. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> the literal interpretation of seven times returner, one times returner, non returner, and arha is that. A seven times returner, they're a string enterer. They've had the initial breakthrough. But it's possible that they may be reborn as many as seven times before they become arhats. Okay? But it doesn't mean that they have to be. 
could be six or five or four or three or two or one, or it could happen half an hour later. Okay? Uh, likewise, the once returner at, at the literal level could return, <coughs> could be reborn once more before they become an arhat. And the non-returner <coughs> will not be reborn in the sense realm, but will be reborn in the devar realm and will achieve becoming our hot there. Uh, so that's the literal meaning of these things. Now, of course, be reborn seven times? Wait a minute. We're in a conflict here already. Another way of understanding this is, is metaphorically that rebirth is taking place continuously, but that the idea of being reborn into samsara. So a person has uh, this experience and then they go out in the world but they are not a perfected being yet. Um, They have many ego habits and they still have craving, they still have desire and aversion. So they can be captured again by samsara never the way it was the first time but they can be captured again. And Seven means this can happen, this could happen not a huge number of times, but it could happen quite a few times. That's what seven means. Each time, you know, the person gets caught up in old habitual patterns of behavior and they start to experience suffering and maybe they start to do some things that aren't wholesome, but then it's like they wake up and they come back out of it. And this could happen a number of times before they go to the next stage. And then the person who is a once-returner, this is a person who realizes that what they have to do, they have to completely uproot desire and aversion related to the sense realm. What they recognize is that the mental states that we talked about earlier today, they meditate on mental states, and mental states are changing, changing, changing. And they realize that there is only one truly wholesome mental state. And all the rest are in one way or another unwholesome and dissatisfying. And the only unwholesome mental states that they experience are those when desire and aversion are absent. And so they have a powerful wish to overcome craving and aversion, desire and aversion, and become free of unwholesome mental states. So... They go back into samsara with the deliberate purpose of uprooting desire and aversion. And that's the once returner. They have to return in order to do that. The non-returner has destroyed desire and aversion. So even though they're still in the world, they're not going to experience the kind of suffering that comes from desire and aversion. So they are a non-returner to samsara but they're not fully enlightened yet. They're not an arhat. See, that's the meaning of that. And a comparison that I can use, the seven times returner was having this nightmare, in other words, ordinary life. And they woke up. Wow. I'm glad that that's not real. Huge relief. Feel a lot better. But they might stay awake or they might fall asleep again. Now, they fall asleep again the nightmare might start up again, but not that long. They'll wake up. They'll wake up out of it a lot more quickly this time. 
And that could happen a number of times. The once returner, he's like a lucid dreamer because he's going into the dream, but this time with awareness. You know, if you have a lucid dream, you can control what happens in the dream. You can choose how you're going to behave, whereas in a non-lucid dream, you react blindly as a result of your shankaras, your mental formations. So we can use the analogy of the of the uh, of the sleeper, uh, the dreamer, and the lucid dreamer to understand the relationships between these. But doesn't have to fall asleep again. Don't have to come back seven times. It happened right away. So it does. So you explained it metaphorically. Yeah. Seven is really a long time because if you think about what the Buddha said about uh, you know being enlightened after seven days of meditation, we all done more than seven days by this point, and I yeah. I don't know if any of us have achieved enlightenment yet. So. <laughs> <laughs> and then at this point, our can retreat or something like that. Well, the Buddha meditated for seven years. <laughs> so so his seven days is. His days, I don't know if it's Deva days or human days. Yeah, so he, he meditated for seven years. Then he gave up austerities, ate rice milk, sat down by the river. He sat down by the river and he said, I'm not going to get up until I become enlightened. And he became enlightened by the time the sun came up the next morning. And then he continued to sit for seven days in uh, and uh, enjoying the bliss of enlightenment. Now, what's not really clear is, was he an arhat from sunrise on, or was he uh, a a non-returner, sat there for seven days, and then became an arhat? It's not specifically laid out, and I I think the traditional idea is an arhat from 6 a.m. when the sun came up, but... Buddha was very creative. How you created <laughs> I created Rista. Four stage, but not five. Four stages rather than five, yeah? Yeah. Well, it's like, it is just like the ten stages of the meditation practice. It's like, there's a process that takes place, and there's some, if you decide to break it up, there's some obvious things that are consistent across many different people that you attach the label of stage two. And so he could have made five or seven or nine or whatever. As a matter of fact, in uh, Mahayana, they, they make uh, ten boonies, yeah. right? Fifteen. Or fifteen or twelve. They have no, different. five Bodhisattva <coughs> <coughs> stage. Well, there's, there's the five Bodhisattva boonies okay. and then, then there's the five paths. Yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, and which come from actually come from different traditions and it's funny they, they get glued together and you see they don't really fit <laughs> no actually there's a huge argument between the Mahayana and the no whether Aha is, is a <coughs> oh yeah Bodhisattva or not they still yeah. argue about it yeah and, yeah it's a really interesting argument on yeah. one hand saying well that well an Arha yeah. which by the way means somebody who's completely transcended the sense of self. Arhat is selfish. 
<laughs> okay. And the whole rest of the dis- dispute after that becomes very entertaining. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it's obvious that the whole basis of the dispute is uh, scholasticism, uh, the- philosophical and theoretical. But, but then we were, I think the dispute, because we are not enlightened, that's why we have the dispute because it's still relative that's right yeah. Uh, level yeah right yeah as a matter of fact I find that scholastics have a lot of disputes that meditators can see that they don't that there's that what they're talking about is pointless yes you know? so <clears throat> but scholastics often uh, philosophers often don't meditate enough so <laughs> Or <laughs> and so they dispute about how many Buddhas can dance on the head of a pin. Uh, so does an enlightened person like make mistake in life? What's that? Make any mistake in their life? Still make mistake like an enlightened person? Would an enlightened person be? Still make mistake in life in their daily life. Would they be? Did you say sick? But like mistake. 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 Uh, mistake. Mistake. Making mistakes. Making mistakes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, an interesting question. A very interesting question. Because one of the common things that's said about Buddhas and Arhats is that they are omniscient. This is this is both a part of popular Buddhism. And it's also a part of scholastic analysis, is to say that Buddhas are omniscient. And in popular Buddhism, that's taken to mean, well, they know everything, so they could never make mistakes. Um, But I'll tell you, in the sutras, uh, the Buddha recounts, or the sutras recount, a number of things that to... Other people, you'd look at and you'd say, wow, that was a really big mistake. <laughs> or, for example, one time, he gave a really powerful teaching on the meditation on the foulness of the body. Right. And he did, a re- he did such a good job of teaching, they said, okay, now I'm going into retreat. And he went into retreat. While he was in retreat, a large number of monks uh, killed themselves or had themselves killed. No, now, to me, that's a mistake. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, you look at the commentary on that, you know, and the commentators hundreds of years later, they say, well, no, you see, the Buddha was omniscient and he can't make mistakes. And the truth is that he knew the past karma of these people, and that they had the karma to commit suicide, and that he knew that rather than intervene, the best thing was to let them go ahead and act out their karma because they had been followers of his, and because of the good karma they made in their next rebirth, they were, you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but if we can believe the sutras, Buddhists are not omniscient in the sense of being incapable of making mistakes. The Buddhas are omniscient, and, and also in terms of that kind of omniscience, 
if everything is empty and everything is a projection uh, of the mind, and if every person is living in a different reality, which is a projection of their mind, you know, it may seem like it's really impressive to be omniscient in the sense of knowing everything in a whole self-existent universe. But imagine that you have to know everything in every projected universe in every sentient being's mind. Now that, that's a lot of omniscience. (laughs) On the other hand, the Buddha is omniscience in understanding the way that our minds work and understanding the true nature of reality and understanding... I mean, this is omniscience in its truest sense. The Buddha doesn't need to know whether or not you should marry this person and tell you the advice, like the village. (laughs) Or which stock you should invest in, or anything else. The Buddha does not need that kind of omniscience. The Buddha's omniscience is the omniscience that he manifested over and over again by being able to teach people effectively and lead them to enlightenment and to leave a body of teaching that has continued to expand and grow and deepen and become richer and richer ever since. And so, uh, and that was not a mistake. (laughs) (laughs) So I would think that an enlightened person could make certain kinds of mistakes. Well, I'm interested in knowing I'm oh, sorry, I, I'm dragging this. I shouldn't ask any more questions. <laughs> I know you're tired. <laughs> uh, do you think we could save all these? Do you, yeah. Can you can you promise to remember them? Write them down. Yeah. Yeah. Let's bring this conversation back to life yeah. tomorrow. Yeah. Can we do that? Yeah. Okay. It'll be, it'll be worth the wait. Yeah. Okay. Because I'm enjoying it and I think it is productive and meaningful to you. I have the feeling that I'm filling in gaps in understanding that people would like to have filled in. But uh, it's up to you to regenerate the momentum tomorrow night so that sure. I can continue. So. Thank you very much. So, thank you. So, uh, we only have 14 minutes till the bell rings.